This is Secure, hosted by Charles Latimer and presented by FinFit, a podcast empowering business leaders to build a financially stable and resilient workforce. Welcome back to Secure Podcast. This is Charles Latimer. I am super excited to be hosting Rachel Schneider today. She is the CEO and founder of Canary, also the co-author of Financial Diaries, which is uh, based on a really cutting-edge study around financial wellness across America. It's an absolute pleasure to be hosting you today, Rachel. And please, uh, I, you know, share a little bit of your background, your story, and and I've just and once again, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so happy to be. Thanks so much for inviting. Um, and yeah, you gave the highlights. And I spent a lot of my career at the Financial Health Network, an organization you know you know well. I'm guessing a lot of your listeners know well. Um, and was delighted to be the lead resource there, and so got to go deep into both fintech innovation and how it can help to improve people's financial lives, as well as going deep into what are the true needs that people experience. And um, the work I'm doing today in Canary very comes out of that work. That's excellent. Would you mind unpacking a little bit of the study that went behind financial diaries and, and that work? Because I, I think that really provides a, a nice backdrop. Yeah, I'm glad you say so. So so in the financial diaries research project, I partnered with a professor at NYU named Jonathan Mordock. And we led a research study where we worked with about 235 families across the U.S. They were, you know, in rural areas and urban areas. They were in every part of the country. Some of the folks we worked with were recent immigrants. Some had, had families who had been here for generations. Common thread was that everyone was working, like every household we worked with had a working person. And everyone we worked with was um, between the poverty line and area median median income. So not the poorest in our country, but not the wealthiest either. And we gathered data from those families for a full year and tried our best, along with our research team, to understand every single dollar that came in and out of the person's home. So every dollar was earned, spent, borrowed, saved, given away. And what we wanted to do was create this understanding of How did the family's financial life change over time, over the course of a year? And the big picture that emerged from our research was how volatile people's financial lives are, right? So spending went up and down um, in ways that are obvious when you think about how your own financial life works, right? The beginning of the school year is more expensive. Christmas is more expensive. Um, but also maybe something breaks in your house or you have a car accident. So spending, you know, really fluctuates month by month. But we also saw that for lots of people, earnings fluctuated month by month. And so you really end up in this position where there's mismatch is what we describe it as between when your earnings are up and when your spending is up. Those don't necessarily show up at the same time, right? You can have a car accident the same week you get less hours at work. Um, and often it does go that way. And so uh, as we process, well, what are we seeing here? For me, one of the big issues that shows up that, oh, you've got to figure out how to solve it is what do you do when somebody has a spike in expenses, doesn't show up at the same time as a spike in income, 
and they just don't have the money to manage that spike. And often that's happening to people when they experience some kind of an emergency, right? They're, they're in a car accident or their car just breaks down or they live in the path of a hurricane or something happens that's medical. And often the dollar amounts that are an issue in that moment are, you know, $1,000, $2,500. And yet, you know, we know most Americans don't have that money saved. So how do you get somebody that $1,000 in that minute? Because in that minute, that money um, is pivotal. It's the difference between, you know, fixing your car and being able to keep working or not. And, and yet, you know, for those, those, those moments are really important for the person experiencing the crisis. That dollar amount doesn't sound like that big an amount to plenty of Americans, right? So we really live in this society where for some people, a thousand or $2,500 is huge, a major expense. And for others, it's not. And so I was really focused on, well, how do you create more matchmaking between those two groups? Because we have plenty of generosity in our society. We just need to direct it towards those who are experiencing those pivotal moments where a, a, a relatively manageable amount of money is the difference between you know a successful, stable financial future. I, I'm curious, how does that volatility in spending impact someone's psychology and, and their sense of fight or flight? Does that in any way prevent savings behavior? Well, that's so interesting that you're making that connection. I love that. So, you know, there's this amazing work that's been done over many years around um, uh, in the behavioral economics world around like, what is, what does it do to your brain? What does it do to your processing when you experience scarcity? So like the first thing your question raised was this book called Scarcity, which is a phenomenal book. Um, I can't recommend more highly. Um that really makes the case that when you are short on resources, whether those that resources is financial or time or friendship, actually, that's how they make the case. It just affects your ability to make decisions, affects your ability to process because you're so focused on the near term problem. And we, we absolutely saw this in our research when people are focused on how do I pay my rent today? They are not able to generate additional mental space for how am I going to pay for my retirement in 25 years, right? Holding both of those problems in your head simultaneously is hard. And also it just makes sense. It's like, of course, people are going to prioritize, well, what do I need to do to pay my rent today? Um, we did, we did not see by any means, um, that people were overspending and therefore not saving. What we saw was people are saving, but they're needing to deplete those savings on a regular basis. Right? So uh, we really thought about it as um, you need to think about three different buckets for savings. There's the long-term savings. There's, you know, for retirement or a major, um, there's long-term savings that you're really not going to use for years and years and years. Then there's, um, nearer term savings that is for that you should expect to draw down. Like I'm going to save a few hundred dollars, but then I'm going to spend that few hundred dollars. Um, but a lot of our savings advice in society is like lock it away, like save and don't ever open that box again. And that really gets in the way of people being prepared for the natural ups and downs of life in a way. Was there a certain portion of the population that you studied that just sort of intuitively? 
just did it right, quote unquote. I mean, you know, they they really sort of, uh, you know, they had an embedded savings behavior. And, and how did they sort of um, behave differently or sort of how were their results over that year different than the other part of the population? Yeah. It's a, so I wouldn't describe it as that there was were specific groups or, um, it, but there are individual people. Like the, what, the, what, it, what it kept coming to my head during the research everybody has a system like everybody's got some ways that they manage their money right we, like we all like have things we do to like help us make our money work so some of the people who are really effective at savings they part of their system was around how am i going to save and we saw really fun inventive stuff like um the one person strategy the bank of mom like he founded this gentleman we it was in the research, found it really hard. Um, well, what, what he did was when he wanted to save money, he gave that money to his mom. And he said, she's like four knocks. Like, I'm going to have to, I'm, like, I, I can get that money back if I need it, but it's not super accessible to me. So people created lots of barriers between themselves and their savings. We had somebody else who, same, similar thing, um, she put her savings in a credit union that was a decent drive away from her house and did not have a debit card associated with that account. So she viewed that as like, that's for really, really needs. Those were her words. Like really, really needs. And like this bank that's inconvenient to me, I'm going to go get that money. And then she had an account at a, a bank that was much closer to her house that she used for her regular spending. So people create barriers. I love that. I, I love the idea of having, a, you know, your own system in place uh, for savings that's maybe unique to you. And and so so then the real question is, is e even if you have those systems in place and you're doing all the right things right, this is kind of a segue into your work with Canary. What happens in those moments where all the systems in the world aren't going to help? Maybe because, you know, maybe there's a, a natural disaster, maybe the things that are happening that are way outside of your control. And and so how did the study uh, of financial diaries and that process lead to or inspire your work with Canary? Yeah, you know, it, it really is connected because you see so many people, and we saw this in diaries, so many people who they're just working really hard and they're making lots of good choices. And yet, um, we live in a way where we're really on our own to some extent. So, so I kind of have to back up to answer your question. Like a lot of what we saw in this volatility was about um, the ways in which individuals take on risk that's actually bigger systemic risk, right? So, some of the ups and downs we saw in earnings, for example, was caused by the idea that maybe you work for a company and even though you're a full-time worker, they cut your hours week by week or, or decide how many hours you get in the moment when there's less demand. So it's pretty normal at this point for restaurants to send people home when there's nobody in the restaurant and then you just don't earn for those hours. Or even in hospitals, nurses are now in that position where like hospitals will real-time manage their um, their labor force, right? And send people home if the beds aren't full. And so in a way, what's happening there is that the individuals now bearing the risks 
in, that come with the ups and downs in demand for their services, right? And so this thing that could be a risk that's shared across many, many people, which is, oh, fewer people need this thing, so we're all going to earn a little bit less money, actually gets pushed back down put all the way to the specific worker. And so I was really passionate about, like, well, how do we put more risks? Like, how do we kind of distribute risk across a group in a better way? Because in any group of 100 people, somebody experience a crisis. And, and like, how do, you, how do you enable that whole group to support the crisis of the, that one individual in a really good way? And that, led, that question led me into the idea of employee emergency relief plans, where, um, and that's what Canary works on today, is, is we help employers to set up a charitable fund, or essentially the employer donates money into a nonprofit and individuals who work for that company can also donate into that nonprofit. And then there's this pool of funds that's available should any one individual who works for the company experience a crisis. And so it's a really a way of being there for each other saying, Oh, you know, in human society, like stuff's going to go wrong for somebody at any given moment. How do we step in for each other? And, um, and it really comes directly from that moment of like watching how many people's lives close up through the diaries and seeing how even when you make great financial choices and do the best you can, there are just moments when you're going to be short and you need help. And how do we help each other? So what does that process look like? You know, I, I'm an employer and, and I call up Canary and said, you know, I, I want to set up an employee relief fund, you know, from, from that first conversation to you know, having that be available to the entire uh, community of my workforce, what does that look like? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. So essentially, um, we work with employers to determine the basic structure of the program. And we have a default structure, which um, works really well, where we've selected a, a set of events that can be covered. Um, it's not quite insurance, so covered isn't quite the right language, but essentially the event that makes somebody qualify for a potential grant. And um, we work with the employer to size what do we think the likely use is and therefore what is their likely cost going to be. And then um, we launch a white-labeled web application on behalf of that employer so that their employees, whenever they experience a crisis, can come and request help. And then from there, it's... it's, uh, you know, very, um, it's like a mix of technology and handholding, right? So, so when individuals experience a crisis, they come to our web application and they make an application, and they upload some documentation, and they tell us what's happened to them. And we then have a person on the other end who's reviewing that information, asking follow up questions, and making sure that the individual who's experienced the crisis is able to complete their application. And then if they're eligible for funding, we devote, we um, send them funds. And, and the whole thing is happening as a charitable activity. So for the donors into the funds, this is a non, this is a charitable deduction. And for individuals who are receiving payment, it's an emergency payment that's not taxable income. That, that's, that's amazing. So I, how I am an employee of Acme Corp and, and I want to contribute to Acme Corp's employee relief fund. How do I do that? Do I do that directly through payroll or, or what's that process look like? Yeah, people can donate directly through payroll or they can donate directly through our 
website. So, so through um, that white labeled, you know, Acme Court, we call it Grand Circle. So there's an Acme Court Grand Grand Circle website which you can go to and donate directly and set up either a monthly ongoing recurring donation or a one-time donation. Or similarly, you can click on that website and select payroll deduction. I love that. So could you give us an example of a company that's uh, maybe one of Canary's clients that set up an employee relief fund that you sort of look at as kind of a gold standard? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been working with Umco Bank um, almost since our inception. And their initial motivation is, so they're a bank up in the Pacific Northwest. And their experience is typical. They were focused on wildfires and on the fact that on a regular basis, right, annually, now their folks are going to be at some point impacted by wildfire and they were dealing with that as a one-off every year when their employees were in crisis and of course some people had to evacuate other people had to invest money in cleaning their air or their property whatever whatever the impact on them was and people miss work because of the disruption and the hr team there and the um CSR team both wanted to professionalize and systematize like how they were responding instead of it being an annual scramble, right? It, and, they, and so what they did is they set up an emergency relief fund with us. And while they were doing it, um, created it to be more expansive than purely for natural disasters. But, you know, one of the big motivations here is to be able to respond to all employees in a consistent and equitable and dignified way. So when companies are generous in a one-off way, right, we, ha- we, we happen to have this site and this one person was affected by this one wildfire, there's just a huge risk that you distribute funds unequally, right? Only the people who speak up will be helped. And one of the benefits of setting up a true program is then everyone knows they have access to it. If people can raise their hand and ask for help um, with a higher level of confidence that they'll be treated in the way that they want to be treated. And also people are embarrassed and they feel bad asking for help. And you know, people want to be self-reliant. They want to make their own lives work. And so part of why UNCLA wanted to work with us was they knew we would treat their people with real care and they knew increase people's willingness to raise their hand and ask for help if there was a third party involved versus going to your boss or your direct HR. I love that you address the embarrassment layer. I, I was recently looking at some research that said over half of individuals that need help with their finances or, or, or having some sort of crisis are too embarrassed to ask for it. And, and so that, that you remove that embarrassment layer is a very, very powerful part of the proposition. So once somebody reaches out and says, I, I need help, what does that approval process look like? Do you make that decision on behalf of the company or does the company make that decision? And we own everything about that decision. So the um, because this is a charitable activity that's, that is happening. And so what's going on is um, the company is making a restricted grant to a nonprofit, and then that nonprofit is choosing to get, use that money in accord with the grant, like against eligibility criteria. So the key is that we are consistent across all applicants, and that's one of the real benefits of having somebody like us do it. And so, 
Um, yeah, so we hold those decisions and we also hold all of the customer service around it. People asking follow-up questions. What does this mean? And how do I get my money? And am I really eligible? And it, it's really a huge benefit to the company to turn that administrative work over to us. Having a third party manage that process is such a smart idea. I mean, you, you know, it, and it really just, I put so much integrity be, behind that, that, um, I'm going to say employee benefit. I mean, it's certainly a benefit, but it's, you know, can become a cornerstone of really signaling to your workforce that you live into the statements that your people are your most important asset. And, and, and not a lot of companies fully live into that. And, and so I, 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 my, my final question here is, I, you know, I, I see the value of this for any company. And so as a company, uh, how do they reach out to Canary and, and get a process moving forward to set up an employee relief fund? Yeah, I'm glad you say that. see it that way. And certainly we agree that any company should at least consider putting a fund like this in place and not only um, to validate, as you said, that their employees are their most important asset, but also as a real um, commitment to culture and community, right? That we are all in it together and especially in this world where so many people are working remotely, that connection to each other, to your colleagues, to the experience of work is really um, tenuous. And we need more and more ways for people to feel like, oh, no, actually, my colleagues care about me and I care about them. And we are all part of this greater enterprise. Um, so the easiest way to set one up is reach out to me. I'm Rachel at workwithcanary.com. Or go to our website at workwithcanary.com and fill out our info at form and somebody will get right back to you. Because we would love to talk with folks not only about um, how we can help them set up a fund, but um, how this connects with other financial health initiatives, how it connects with their community building initiatives, and how the broad idea can be part of um, how the world work is really changing. Well, I would encourage uh, all companies out there to to go to uh, one reach out to Rachel and then go to workwithcanary.com. Uh, and and it's just been an absolute pleasure to be able to sit and have this conversation with you today, Rachel. I really admire the work that you're doing. And for anyone who's interested in understanding financial stability and wellness across America, I think that Financial Diaries, your book is a must read. Absolutely is. And and it's always a pleasure to sit down with you. You're inspiring and, and really a true innovator and leader in the space. And so I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. That's really nice to hear. And I feel the same about you. So thanks so much for inviting me.